And welcome to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Today, it's a great pleasure to welcome one of the world's most celebrated crime, mystery, thriller writers. If you haven't read a Michael Connolly novel, you've definitely missed out and ought to get to the bookstore wherever you can and order one. His most recent, it's his 37th, is Desert Star, and his books include the series featuring detectives Harry Bosch and Renee Ballard and Bosch's half-brother, the Lincoln lawyer, Mickey Heller, and include two New York Times bestsellers, The Dark Hours and The Law of Innocence, as well as novels made into major motion pictures, Bloodwork, starring Clint Eastwood, and The Lincoln Lawyer, starring Matthew McConaughey, uh, as well as the Bosch TV series on Amazon Prime and The Lincoln Lawyer series on Netflix. He served as executive producer with both of those, and he's also a former newspaper reporter, an award-winning journalist, and has sold over 80 million books worldwide. And I want to welcome Michael Connolly. Delighted to have you with us. Thanks for having me on. I guess uh, I'd like to begin with that number, 80 million. It's hard to get your head around that number. And what I was thinking of was you being a young police reporter, if you'll indulge me with this for a moment. And could you have even imagined this kind of success and this kind of extraordinary career that you've had? No, you really can't. I can't. Um, it's, it's, you know, I kind of um, think about it a lot. Like, you know, all, all you really hope for is to get a book published. And then you get a book published and then you start thinking about, you know, getting another book published. But, you know, as a newspaper reporter, I never thought I would not be. I always thought this would be like a side trade, if you will. Um, and then things started happening. Uh, you know, very, I'm a very lucky individual because I'll be, um, you know, I have an ego. I, I think I have talent and uh, and I worked hard at it. But you do need some components of you know, pure luck um, to fall your way. And uh, that has happened to me repeatedly. So it's enough where you go and think to yourself, you know, do I deserve this? How did I get here? You know, and, and it also makes you want to um, really uh, revere it and treat it as something sacred and, and you know, and, and put in the continue the hard work, never mail it in. Where did luck play its role in this? I mean, because you are, as you say, talented. You're humble when you say you have some talent. And you've also been very fastidious in terms of the research you do, which I want to talk to you about, because it's prodigious and it's really impressive. Uh, where does luck come in? Well, I can go all the way back to when I was 16 years old and happened to be a witness to a crime. And that took me into a police station and met detectives and and that was just because I glanced out the window of a car and saw someone hiding a gun. If I had not glanced out that window, you and I might not be talking because that got me interested in detectives and true crime and true crime led to fictional uh, detective stories. And, and here I am. But, you know, that's a long time ago. But as a guy who had finished his first novel, didn't know a lot about publishing um, and this was kind of before the internet. So I went to a library and got a book on the publishing market and, and got, drew out a list of agents and sent letters to all of them. And the one who eventually answered and wanted to read the book and, and, and take me on, you know, it could have been some other agent, but the agent I, that did take me on had a really long view of my career and he wasn't trying to go out and make a killing on my first book because, you know, if it, if it doesn't live up to expectations financially and critically, then you're kind of dead in the water. So we kind of uh, took less money than we probably could have gotten because we wanted because he's working on a longevity uh, strategy. And, you know, that was a letter sent into the void, you know, and, and then I got a phone call saying, I'd like to read your book. Um, and I got phone calls after I had, some of those letters were answered after I had already signed up with him. His name was Philip Spitzer, and uh, he passed away a couple of years ago. But um, if anyone, you know, you're, you, you, your hope is to get published. So the first guy who called me and said, I want to try to represent you, I was going to go with. And so it turned out the first guy who called me and said, I want, want to go with you was um, was this guy who had a long, long view. And I've been around a long time. This is my 30th year of publishing books, and I, I saw what happened with other writers of equal or even more talent who, um, you know, weren't as lucky as me in terms of the guy who uh, answered your letter. 
Well, he was uh, clearly a central player in your success and very prescient uh, to have that long view, uh, so it served you well. And I guess uh, what you described does fall under the category of luck. But as I said before, you're just so assiduous in what you do. Um, I want to talk about how you work because the forensics, uh, the details, just the kind of well education we get as readers of your book. I get a whole education about you know streets in Los Angeles that I didn't even know existed. I thought I knew Los Angeles or different places to go eat or jazz artists that I maybe wasn't as familiar with but wanted to be more familiar with. I mean, there's a kind of encyclopedic quality to your work. But it's that integrity of holding fast to and paying attention to details that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, um, I sound like I'm giving a review, and I don't mean to do that. I want to find out how you work, how you get at these things. Well, I mean, there's there's a reason behind it, and then it's how I go about getting it. And, um, you know, I think it was um, Malcolm Gladwell or someone put put out the idea that you have to do something for 3,000 hours before you're good at it. In terms of writing detective novels, I think you got to read about 3,000 of them, you know, before I think you you know what you're doing. And um, and so my years of research, I didn't publish a book till I was almost 35, but I was reading all the time and um, was that it's, you know, all about character um, and and connecting that character and so when I started writing, I was covering police in Los Angeles, covering crime. And I knew I had this entree into a real world. And I said, well, that's what I got to use. Um, and that's what I, you know, and, and I've been using it ever since. But, you know, my idea was I'm writing about a guy that doesn't exist. Harry Bosch is a purely fictional character. And to help connect him or sell him, if you will, to, to the reader, I really want to plan his feet in a real world. And that would be, you know, the streets, the restaurants, the music, the politics, the bureaucracy, all that I want to have real. I want it to be accurate. And then it becomes my job to kind of finesse how much is enough, you know, or am I overdoing it with the details? And and there, I think there is a bit of a craft or an art in that, knowing how much you need to sell or or to connect the character to the reader so you know and it comes down to less is always more but if you go less it's got to be a really salient detail of the life that this fictional character is living it's a delicate balance you don't want too much and you don't want too little obviously but yeah i think yeah. you know being deadly accurate can also be deadly boring and so you know you, you if you if you know there are 10 facts that have to be established you know, um, if you can cut it down to two that kind of speak for everything, that open a window in the imagination of the reader. And, uh, you know, so a lot of it is trusting readers to to put things together. Um, but it's just just little small details that um, you kind of know when you write them that they're that your reader's going to nod and think, well, this is the way this must really be. You know, like I remember. Uh, there was a murder in one of my books on a uh, on a uh, train, and there was a turnstile that was covered with powder. Uh, what do you call it? Fingerprint powder. And the detectives would all point it out to each other, you know, so they didn't get it on their suits because the the department doesn't pay for your your dry cleaning bills. And and just when when um, a detective told me that, and I knew I would use it, and then when I did use it, I knew my readers are going to be nodding when they see that, you know, like this guy, this guy Conley, he may have been at these crime scenes to, to pick that up. And that's a beautiful moment when you do come up with that in the writing process. But you're trusting the intelligence of your readers too. Yeah. Yeah. You, you definitely have to do that, especially because I'm not the only guy who's read 3000 uh, crime de detective novels. There's the, you know, it's, it's likely uh, that the people reading my books have read many, many, many uh, books by other authors. Well, you always mention Ross MacDonald and Joseph Wamba, and uh, I think uh, those are the two main writers I often associate you with, but also Raymond Chandler. Uh, I mean, these are kind of key figures in your development as a writer, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, this this incident I had when I was a kid triggered an interest in this world. And... Uh, and and that was fine. I mean, I went off to school when I was in engineering and I was, you know, going to go down a path that um, I thought I wanted to go down. And it was when I discovered their books, especially Chandler's books, 
and saw that there was an elevation in the in the uh, in the crime novel that showed a reflection of culture and and life in a city, a city I'd never been in. All those those three writers you mentioned wrote about you know Southern California and L.A. Never been here. I grew up on the East Coast. But there, there was something about that that really struck me as uh, this is art. And and it suddenly became something where I I had a goal of like trying to um, attain what they did in their books. There is an art to the detective novel. I think it was C.P. Snow, a British writer and scientist, who said, if you can write a detective novel, you can write any novel because of the plotting that's involved. But you get... Uh, kind of high marks for having a literary bent as well. I don't know, with all those detective novels that you read, I mean, in your, this is no spoiler or anything, a new novel uh, has some things about Melville in it and The White Whale, and there's a little bit of Joyce. And when I go back and think of the novels that you've read, written in the past, uh, I think about more literary writers in many respects who have had an influence clearly on you too. Yeah, I mean, I try to. Well, first of all, thank you for that compliment. But I do try. I have in my past, you know, read everywhere. It's not if you want to write uh, detective novels, I would suggest you read biographies of jazz musicians. And that can be just as helpful as reading a book by Joseph Wambaugh. Um, you got, you know, you, uh, the detective novel can take you anywhere you want to go, uh, you know, any subject, any place. And so you should have a sense of, of where you want to go um, and, and you know, have a sense of the world that you can bring um, to life or, or to explore or to subtly, you know, never be didactic, but, but sudden, subtly get a message through, you know, mystery of a message. So there's many ways you can elevate the simple whodunit to, to something more, uh, something that has a better or a greater resonance to it. You like to philosophize, too, though, uh, through your characters. I mean, you really get inside the head of those characters, and I don't know how close you are to Hieronymus Bosch or Mickey Haller or, for that matter, Renee Ballard, but, you know, you bring them alive in a way that suggests that you're kind of doing a mind meld with them or at least creating them in a way that may reflect some of your views. And I'm just wondering to what extent you feel when you philosophize you want to maybe put forward ideas that you have maybe were capital punishment or no cash bail, or you just want to kind of lay it out like the journalist and reporter? I want to do both. Um, you know, I understand what my position is, that I know people will um, read these books. I've had people, you know, upset upset with some of the things some of my characters say and ascribe them to me. And, you know, I'm not going to read your books anymore now that I know your politics. That's a thing I've gotten many times over the years. But I really have to, if I have a view of something, um, I, I I will try to get it in. I, again, you never want to be didactic. It's all about finesse, and, and you want to have the action of the story bring up these thoughts in the characters organically. And, you know, so it's not it's not, not all through my books. It's, it's on occasion. But I also have to filter them through who these characters are. I just can't give them my point of view. I mean, I've never solved the murder. I've never had a gun on the gun. These are characters that have different life experiences than me. And although we might agree politically on something or or, or not on something, it's it's really something you have to, you know, you got to keep your eyes on the the prize of who this character is and how this character would would view something. And, uh, you know, and sometimes it immediately gets ascribed to me as my views when sometimes it's not, you know, um, these characters are based on lots of time spent with real detectives. And, uh, you know, I don't share everything that uh, every kind of uh, political view that they have. And and again, it's the old reporter in me. I want to I want to be accurate to what a character in this city, doing this job, would how they would view something. Well, Harry Bosch is certainly far and away your best-known character. Uh, why did you conceive, I'll use that word advisedly, uh, of his mother being a prostitute? Where did that come from? Um, it came from, I was out here uh, in Los Angeles working um, on crimes and um, kind of writing at night, trying to get fiction going. And I read, uh, I started reading books by James Elroy, and then Elroy started getting popular. And there was, uh, I remember there was a Los Angeles Magazine profile. His mother, was mur- his mother was murdered, yeah. 
his mother was murdered and um and it was like kind of clear this guy's working that out whatever whatever that trauma is in him he works it out by writing about um uh, mostly about women who were murdered in novels and so i just thought well what about a guy who has the same kind of trauma in his life who works it out by solving murders mostly of women and th that was kind of the the starting point and um this goes back to your first question. I, I was trying to get one book published, you know, and I got lucky and it got published. And then they said, uh, we want another Harry Bosch book. What should he do? And I said, well, the obvious thing is he should solve his mother's murder. And they said, no, not yet. That's that's something down the road. What else you got? And so it wasn't to the uh, fourth book that I en endeavored to solve Harry Bosch's mother's murder. And just like months before it was um, coming out, um, there it was announced in the, the publishing press or whatever uh, that Elroy was going to do a nonfiction book on his investigation of his mother's murder. So I saw these things that are kind of running parallel. And I had a slight acquaintance with uh, Elroy. We had the same agent. And uh, so through the agent, um i sent him a letter at the time he was li living in st louis i sent, sent him a letter saying i'm doing the same thing it was inspired by you i hope you're not upset and you know basically he kind of wanted to put it on his radar that there might be some correlation between my book and his when they get published months apart and um he was like i guess two hours ahead of me but one day i used to I, this was when i was still working as a newspaper reporter so i used to write through the night and like four o'clock in the morning my phone rings and it's james elroy and i'm like i'm like freaking out thinking all right he's going to tell me do not publish that book or something and instead he said unfortunately i don't have the franchise on murdered mothers so uh, <laughs> good, good luck with your book so I was uh, uh, I was like, wow, glad a relief. That, glad I took it that way. Yeah, on and uh, you know, such a uh, sad topic. Yeah, I mean, it's a dark humor to think of franchise on something of that nature. Yeah, it was a good story. Um, we've got lots of questions for you. Before we get to them, uh, there are a lot of folks who listen to this podcast and are involved in it from the technical world. And what I've noticed, especially in recent novels of yours, is real interest in not only biotechnology, but just technology in general, kind of cutting edge stuff. You brought it into a few of your recent novels. Uh, you sort of study this stuff on the side or what, what's it, what part of your life is it? Um, I'm fascinated by it. Um, and, and I kind of have a very pessimistic or um, maybe just an ironic view that I like in my fiction I, I kind of follow this philosophy that for every great advancement we have in technology, um, there's going to be somebody out there who's going to figure out how to turn it against us, you know? So largely through the books I write about the reporter named Jack McAvoy, um, I've only written three, uh, three of those, but they're very specifically inspired and about that idea that something is turned against us. And you know, the last one was called Fair Warning, and it was about DNA, basically. And uh, it was inspired by the uh, the Joint Chiefs put out a memo to all military, all U.S. military, all branches, uh, forbidding uh, anyone in these branches of military service from giving their DNA to uh, uh, these heritage-type sites, and 23andMe and things like that, because of concerns over uh the security of their dna and i just thought that was pretty fascinating and so i looked into it like a reporter and found out there's no regulation of any of these types of companies and and you're basically hoping that they have integrity and that's my thing to to uh show how things can go sideways um with technology and, and so that's that spawned the last book fair warning that came out a few years ago I was sort of uh, the value of having studied engineering too. I mean, uh, gives you sort of a step ahead in some ways with technology, doesn't it? Well, I, we didn't get into whether I was a good student, <laughs> so I think I ended up going uh, switching to journalism and creative writing because uh, I wasn't long for these engineering classes. Oh, well, you certainly have found a home in journalism and creative writing, and we've got some people who 
have questions for you, beginning with uh, Nigel DeSalle, who says, Michael, I qualify as a fanboy and pre-buy every book excitedly. I get particular joy when characters come in and out of each other's novels. How do you decide when it's good to do this or worry that it might be distracting? Uh, you know, I, I have to admit, I don't worry that it's distracting. It's, uh, you know, I, I think very much the writing process is mirrored in the reading process. So if you're having a good day writing or you're writing quickly or fast or you're the the words or pages are piling up, I, I think that's a good thing because I think the reader will go through those pages very quick. It's, you know, it's about momentum in writing translates to momentum in reading. And I, it's fun for me to do that. Uh, you know, it takes me about a year uh, to write a book and I want to have a good time while I'm writing it. I want to feel every day is a satisfactory day of writing. And one of the ways of feeling satisfied is to, um, you know, bring in these characters and have them cross paths and so forth. And in the new book, Mickey Hall, the Lincoln lawyer is on it for a phone call in one chapter, but I loved writing it that day. And I knew it could lead to something in the next book. So um, I don't really hesitate to do it. I never really thought it could be, um, distracting and maybe i should um it's not distracting to me because i'm kind of the keeper of this whole um universe and and uh you know so i can keep track of it pretty easily and maybe i should be thinking that well this is one book that the reader read after 50 of some books since my last one and they might be confused but it just has never really intruded into uh, my thought processes of um, in, in terms of writing but you do have this whole mythic world of yours. It sort of makes me think about Faulkner, what he called his postage stamp of reality, uh, Yaknapatafa County, where he has all these people that keep coming back in different novels and from different generations and so forth. And it makes me wonder, to what extent are you surprised when you're writing? I mean, you get a momentum going, obviously, and you just expressed a real pleasure in the writing process. But do you find yourself sometimes uh, having characters say things that you didn't expect them to say or do things that you hadn't? even imagine not really in the moment but i don't i don't outline my book so i i don't write a book till i have the a good sense of how it should start and how it should end i don't put that down on paper i just have it in my head and then i head off and so you know that probably accounts for 100 out of 400 pages so there's 300 pages of writing that are discovered on the day it's writing the day i've written it and so it's not like surprise in the moment, but oftentimes, you know, I'll I'll be in a book and, I, and it's like six months ago when I started this book, I had no idea I'd end up here, you know, in, in the desert or I'd end up here where um, this character would do this this thing because it was unplanned because not, not a lot is planned when I when I write these books. So it's not like, oh, wow, I can't believe that guy said that in the moment, but but it's stuff that I never intended or or thought would happen when I started uh, that book, that particular book. There's another, uh, this is kind of a interesting way of uh, challenging you, I suppose. Chris Clark writes, um, John Sanford, Michael Connolly, and Lee Child walk into a bar. What do they talk about? <laughs> <laughs> They're all pretty quiet people. <laughs> uh, I guess they, they, uh, Bosch just apologizes to Lee, to Lee. I mean, oh, it's the three of us. I was thinking of our characters. Well, I know the both those guys, and I don't know if we'll talk about anything because uh, Lee Child is one of the most quiet guys I know, and I'm pretty quiet. So uh, I think we'd talk about publishing dates and make sure we're not crossing each other. Like, I don't ever want to come out on the day Lee Child comes out and or uh, Jonathan Sanford, John Sanford. Well, yeah, so. you're a quiet guy, but for example, your character, Mickey Heller, is anything but a quiet guy. Is that an alter ego? Is that something maybe that you want to uh, create to give yourself a different voice? It's interesting. The uh, I mean, everybody, every character is an alter ego in some way. But um, Haller was inspired by my college roommate who uh, became a defense lawyer, and I've always stayed in touch with him, and he was a very loquacious guy. And um, and so there's some of that. But I also viewed Haller as an entree into maybe my view, but I'll just say into how the justice system really works or doesn't. 
And it's so it's funny, he, he's loquacious, but I always considered, and they're a first person novel, so he's talking to the reader, but I always consider them whispers, like he's whispering from the the basement of the courthouse or from behind one of the columns about like, you think you know how the justice system works. Well, you know, get in my Lincoln and ride with me and I'm going to show you how it really, what the truth is, what, what how it really works and how sometimes it doesn't. And it's funny, the first book is called The Lincoln Lawyer, but I turned it in um, with the title uh, Confessions of a Lincoln Lawyer. And uh, for marketing reasons that didn't go over so well, it just was shortened to The Lincoln Lawyer. But I really felt, and and ever since the books I've written about him, I, I feel they're like confessionals about, um, you know, trying to, to show, even though they're fiction, showing the reality of how systems work and entropy changes them and there's cracks and all that kind of stuff um and it doesn't seem like it's somebody on a soapbox it's more somebody uh whispering uh to the to the uh reader about this kind of life i'm whispering to myself uh i've always said his name is haller but it's holler right um because i know someone funny. with the same spelling and they pronounce it haller it's been funny well, how that can happen who is uh uh what's the book i think it's siddhartha um the the character is harry holler and uh or haller i don't know i don't know how it, so it goes back to i don't know steppenwolf the book steppenwolf the, yeah. the character is holler haller i don't know but that's where the name that's, came from that's from hesse uh yeah and, and bosch is from hieronymus bosch i mean uh yeah <laughs> You clearly wanted to give him the name of that painter. Why? It was a painter I studied in um, college when I, uh, it was a humanities class, and, and uh, the professor was fascinated with the works of Bosch, and, and we studied it for a while, and it sticks with you. This is, you know, pre, pre-internet, so it wasn't like this guy was very well known. And remember the 3,000 books I read before I started writing, you know, again, it's about character. And and the second lesson is never miss a chance to say something about character. And that would include a name. And so I just thought this was would be a win-win situation because some people would know right away who Hieronymus Bosch is and some wouldn't. And if they didn't know who he was, they would be, I was hoping they would be intrigued. I'm going to read more and maybe I'll find out how he got this weird name. And if they knew who Bosch was, they'd immediately, I thought, get the metaphor of, you know, these paintings about a world going wrong. Uh, initially, when I wrote the first book, uh, as I was writing the first book, my idea was that Bosch would be a master of, of the crime scene, that he would look at a crime scene and be able to dissect what happened, the way stuff is, uh, let critics look at paintings and so forth. And so there was a, a correlation to that in, in my head as I'm writing. And then it didn't end up that way that Bosch became this expert on crime scenes. It, it kind of went in a different direction, but by then I'd already started using the name. So it was from there. The, um, the funniest side to that is he was, the real Hieronymus Bosch was uh, Flemish and uh, what is now Holland. And when I went there on the book tour, first time I went there, the journalists who interviewed me were very curious. They had your question, why why Hieronymus Bosch? But why did you call him Harry for short? Because Hieronymus is the Latin root for Jerome, and so shouldn't he be called Jerry? And uh, and Jerry Bosch doesn't have the same ring as Harry Bosch, so I'm glad I got that wrong. Yeah, well, I uh, never imagined Harry Bosch to have so many tattoos. That must have an interesting story behind it. Um, well, those are real tattoos. So it's uh, they come with the actor, and uh, he has uh, can't really tell someone how to live their life when they take on a character, their life off 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 screen or you know away from the character. And so uh, over the years of the show, I, I guess the, the show is a lot like a like my story is books. You know, you just want to get a show on the air and hope for the best. And now it's been nine years, but he has added to his. Uh, uh, tattoo collection as we've gone along uh we've never really kind of delved into that story wise but um probably the uh the viewer who's watching closely can see st tattoos that weren't there last time that kind of thing well when i last interviewed you i think it was when echo park was published and um you were talking about 
that was like 2005, you were talking about a series that would be on Amazon with Bosch. And at the time, I was a little startled to hear that Amazon was making movies. I thought, does this mean Bezos is going to be taking over that world too? Um, and to some degree, I mean, this has been a remarkable success. You, you're in your ninth season. You got a great cliffhanger from the last season. But uh, the reality is that you probably have people saying, this isn't what I imagined from the novel. This, you know, this is not congruent to the novel or criticizing certain things that don't mesh. I think when, if people give it a chance, they won't say that. I think that that could be something someone says immediately without really giving it a shot, but. Well, Michael, excuse you know, me. I'm uh, actually, I'm, I'm saying something, believe it or not, that's complimentary here. I think you were able to take a lot of those Bosch stories and bring them together. And people are looking mainly for single novels and they're not going to, they're going to find. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, it's funny because again, you have no no idea how long this will last. So I, my philosophy was, well, first of all, Amazon didn't just buy one book; they just bought the Bosch Bosch world, if you will. And um, and so, therefore, in the writing room for the show, we've always said, take what you need. You know, we usually pick one book as the spine of a season, but we've we've mined all the books or, or many of the books. I mean, and I was lucky because there was a lot there. So it wasn't like I felt like we we're going to run out of uh, material. And, you know, and and we do complement it with new stuff, you know, new stories. So so that we can service all the characters that um, are running through the show. Um, and, you know, it's it's a fun process. Um, and it is where, you know, it costs money to make these TV shows and so forth. And so, you know, you make choices based on budget like so. You know, I started writing books. Black Echo came out 30 years ago in 1992. Well, we're not going to set books in 1992 because it's very expensive even just to 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 go historical, even if it's only going back 10 or 20 years. Um, so the books, so the show has to be very contemporary, and that involves updating these stories in some way, in some cases, very dramatically in in uh, really big changes. Even bringing in the pandemic, for example, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you got to do it that way, and uh, and and I think it it was a great choice. I wouldn't have wanted to set these in the time frames of the books. I really like the idea of using the show like I do my current whatever book I'm writing to reflect on what's going on right now. You know, I think I read somewhere where you were talking about crossovers. You know, uh, Bosch is on Amazon, and um, Lincoln Lawyer uh, is on Netflix, and you said that. It's almost tantamount to somebody finding the key to world peace. Why is it so difficult to get Netflix and Amazon together? I would think it would be a good enterprise for them. I would think so too, but you know, these are huge, very competitive corporations. And uh, so it would take, you know, some kind of meeting of the minds to say, let's let's pool our rights uh, to these characters and, and have some crossover. It could be fun. I just don't see that um, happening on the at least the current corporate landscape. If uh, you've just joined us by any chance, I'm talking with author Michael Conley, and I just want to give a plug for the fact that we'll be together on November 12th at the National Kidney Foundation Luncheon, which happens every year in San Francisco, and a uh, great lineup this year with additional writers like Jennifer Egan and Siddharthi Mukherjee and... Uh, Billy Collins, a uh, great lineup, and I'll be actually interviewing each of them, and I'll be the honorary chair. So it'll be delightful. You can actually uh, be a part of that virtually as well. It's hybridized. It's going to be in the Palace Hotel in San Francisco, but also online. Uh, and speaking of online, let me go to some more of uh, your questions. This is Mike Edwards from Brooklyn, New York. Wants to know, what was the most impactful real-life real life case you witnessed that had an influence on your first novel? You kind of Broach that a little bit, but I think he's asking you maybe to flesh it out more. Well, I mean, the impact of my first novel would be um, I got lucky before I came to Los Angeles. I was a journalist in South Florida, and uh, there was all kinds of crimes and murder, mostly because of the cocaine that was coming through Miami. Uh, it was a really violent time, and... Uh, the little town north of Miami called Fort Lauderdale, where I grew up um, on a per capita basis, became Murder USA. There was more people murdered in Fort Lauderdale per 100,000 residents than anywhere else in the country. And so that spawned a lot of 
uh, coverage in in the media. And uh, so I had the idea of going to the police chief and saying, hey, let me they they didn't have this word back then. But but more or less, I said, can I be embedded with the homicide uh, team? Because they're running ragged with all these murders and yet their their clearance rate was above like 85 percent they were really good at solving murders and i said this is a way to offset uh, the black eye that fort lauderdale is murder capital of the country and so he allowed me to do that and so i was really embedded for a week uh with this uh, team of six detectives and was before cell phones so i was given a pager and when they were called out i got called out and and what i saw there um was you know like basically looking over the shoulders of of real life detectives and their sergeant and the sergeant was very influential on me and uh he was uh he happened to be named hurt sergeant hurt and uh, a lot of harry bosch came from him and uh and it was just one week they had three murders they solved two of them that week and one was never solved because i kept following up on it uh but that week was again one of those lucky things if i hadn't spent that week i don't know if my my books especially my first book black echo would have had the internal dialogue that harry bosch has in that book about what the job does to him for him you know and uh is very important and a lot of that came from just riding with sergeant hurt to a crime scene or away from a crime scene um you know i just that was that was very impactful well, you give us a real picture, a kaleidoscopic picture of the police, some of the bad cops, as well as people like Bosch, who has, he's willing to defy the law and kind of go around the edges of it uh, if he has to. But for the most part, he has integrity and he has a kind of passion to solve these crimes. And yet also you work with the kind of pessimistic view that he has just about human nature and about it's almost an anarchic view in some ways like i say i see you sort of an armchair philosopher uh you share bosch's view in this kind of dark sense of the world i think i do i think his is a little bit more amped up than mine when you consider his history you know uh, being orphaned and his mother being murdered his mother like not being being kind of a no count um you know Harry has this the code he lives by is everybody counts or nobody counts and a lot of that is born from knowing his mother didn't count that her murder didn't count and it took him growing up and becoming a detective and he's the one who ends up solving the case because no one else cared you know that's not my history and and so um that I think proceeds and inspires his his dark view of the world um so i'm not i'm i'm behind him on that but but not as close to to that kind of view i think i'm a little bit more optimistic but um yeah i mean you know and again i don't have any of the kind of experiences that real detectives have but you know i spent seven years on the uh the cop beat out here and so i wrote about a lot of horrible cases and and the thing that always stuck with me when i reached this point where i said i'm going to just be a full-time novelist and leave this behind and i had to clear out my file cabinets at the la times whenever there was a murder i always opened a new file a manila file put put in the in on the sides i wrote the names of the detectives or phone numbers anything i had i put in that file so that when they solved it i could go to this file and and have have and be ready to go with a story and i when i was th going through my file cabinets i there were literally hundreds of these files that i never went back to there were so many unsolved murders and uh you know when when you when you realize that there's every one of these is like a, a stone in a pond and the rings go out through families and communities of um unrequited justice um it does give you a dark picture of of society and uh so sure i'm i'm sure that infects what i write to to a pretty high degree well even in desert star your newest novel there's a sense of all those cold cases in fact some of it is really set in the cold case pod where they're working on cold cases but the sense of the ghosts of all those stories is something that's imminent in the in the novel that you really bring to the reader's attention in a graphic and a very impactful way. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that they did that. I mean, that's based, again, it's based on my researching and so forth. The Homicide Archive is a real place, but it's only been open maybe four or five years. 
And before all the unsolved cases were all stored in, you know, LAPD has 19 divisions, I think they're up to 19 divisions now, geographic divisions. And um, the, each, each police station had its own files. And when they brought this all together um, into one archive, it's it's kind of staggering that like all these rows, there's so many rows, they have to use those kind of library cranks to, to, to bring the shelves close together to so they can store more. Um, it's it's very quiet place. It's very uh, hallowed ground in a way. Um, and the ghost is a good word. I mean, you go down these aisles and every 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 plastic binder is someone uh, who was murdered and and uh, no one was brought to justice and it, it does something to you when you go in there. You know, I remember uh, not to get too uh, far afield here, but I remember reading Camus and one of his statements was there really is no justice, and yet so many of your characters are seeking justice, and yet you're overwhelmed with these numbers, like you say, where justice has never been served and never will be served. How do you reckon that, I mean, in your own mind, in terms of just the sense of seeking justice and trying to find it? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, you know, what does it mean? What is justice? Is it someone going to prison? Is it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a hard thing to, to get your head around or, or, or to understand, especially if you're um, a, a family member of a victim which you know thankfully i'm not in my whole life i've only known one person who was murdered and that case bothers me but it it resulted in someone going to prison um i just i do do think about what it would be like to have something like that happen in your life to a loved one and then you just go on years and years and nothing ever happens it's it's just got to infect everything about the way you look at the world like you know the world is unfair and uh yeah, I mean, it's very clear that, you know, the other thing that gets brought up is the word closure, and it's very clear there is no such thing, no such thing if you're, um, if someone in your family has been taken like that, it doesn't matter whether someone goes to prison or not, you're you're never the same, you know, you're, you're wrecked. And, you know, so, so you have that, that's the reality of it, and yet we have these people who are fighting the good fight anyway. And and there's something noble about that, you know, and, and it costs them something to go into this dark world. Um, you know, it's a, it's 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 like physics, you know, for every action there's an opposite and equal reaction. You go into darkness, it's going to get into you. And that's the eternal fight of the detective, how to not let that darkness um bring you down, hollow you out. And that fight which is much more dangerous than bullets and things like that, that um, police officers also feel. Um, that fight is what defines what I do. And it is it is um, a wave that they're, they're never gonna catch up. In LA, there's 6,000 unsolved murders. There's 6,000 in that, in that archive. And there's no way they can ever catch up. So it is a little bit of like spitting into the wind. But the people that are willing to spit into the wind and and take this on, there's something very noble about that. And that inspires me. And I think it connects my uh, characters to my readers because they're the ones that are willing to do this, to take up this fight. Well, your imagination brings it alive. And I must say also, just uh, as a compliment, you do damn well at, portraying villains. I don't know where that particular talent comes from, but <laughs> it's as if you yeah. have you have an understanding of different dimensions of evil that uh, I have to give you kudos for, among so many other things that you do well. But let me go to another. In a fantastic set of characters and books, Henry Pierce and Chasing the Dime did not seem to work. Do you get a sense of why this one is different? Like this one meaning maybe the new one? No, Henry Pierce was in a book called um, Chasing the Dime, and it's actually my only one-off, I guess you'd call it. It's not really connected, although there's a ghost of Harry Bosch in that, like, he's unnamed, but it's, but the the smart reader will realize it's Harry Bosch, but I didn't want to name him in that book. I must um, confess, I thought it was Harry Bosch. <laughs> Hands no, okay, good. <laughs> All right, good. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I, I mean... 
I think the book worked, but it was a uh, I'm trying to remember what the phrase would be, uh, an amateur detective. It was a it was a scientist who got intrigued by something. It was inspired by something that happened to me um, where I, I moved into a new place and got a new phone phone and, and someone kept calling for a woman who used to have that number and she had disappeared. So I used that to, to make Henry Pierce, who was a um, uh, in the techno world, um, interested. And I, I have two brothers that are in that world and, and I, I'm really interested in how people in science um, think and solve problems. And so I, that's what my goal was, to have a amateur detective get intrigued by something personal in his life. And then he goes off and, and starts investigating. And so I wouldn't agree that the book doesn't work. Um, I haven't ever gone back to Henry because, you know, how many times can an amateur detective realistically like start working on murder cases? Uh, again, I, I want to be realistic in what I write. So I didn't feel like I didn't feel like there's another Henry Pierce story. Um, but I, I like that book still. And uh, I would stop short of saying it didn't work. I, I think maybe because I've never gone back to that character, people think I don't think it worked. But but that's not really the case. I liked it. Worked for me, if that's of any value. Right, good, good. <laughs> And here's Colin uh, from Menlo Park says, what surprised, delighted, or disappointed you most about the difference between the work of writing novels and the work in the writing rooms for your TV series? Um, the part, the most difficult for, thing for me, and I, maybe that's surprising or, or whatever the choices were on that question, was oh, I got new respect for um, uh, the script writers because they you lose a major part of what makes writing novels so much fun and fulfilling and that is interior thought you know and so i i started working in these writing rooms when i was 20 years into uh, a novel career and so i was very steeped in my ways of of writing about what harry bosch is thinking or what mickey haller which our first person books is thinking and telling you and whispering to you and then you get into writing scripts and you can't ever say what someone's thinking. Suddenly it's everything's visual, they, right? Yeah, it's what you have to, you have to transmit what they're thinking by what they say and what they do. And you have to be realistic about it. You can't have a character saying, I'm thinking this, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a very difficult craft. And so I think, all right, I think one of the things was what surprised you the most I was surprised by how difficult it was um, to make the transition from writing novels to writing scripts. And and I'll be honest, my early scripts were heavily rewritten uh, by the showrunner, and and rightfully so. And it's only been in the last couple of years that um, uh, I, I, a script comes out and goes out to the production and the actors and all that, and it hasn't been changed too much. So so I slowly have learned the craft i think but it was it is a very very difficult or was a very difficult transition for me so what were you doing as executive producer what were your responsibilities and what really i'm was was they're mostly about? in the writing room yeah they're mostly in the writing room because that's what i can bring to it i i don't know anything about camera angles and and that sort of thing um so i'm not really needed on a set i go to the set not too often, but I do. I go to the set to more or less be encouraging of actors and directors and 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 the crew. Um, I think it helps that they see me. But but where I really contribute to the show is when there's seven or eight of us sitting around a table, and uh, as they say, beating out the story, becoming getting the beats of stories and breaking them into episodes and so forth. And uh, you know, and and there's that's not too far off from novel writing or plotting novels and so that's where i i feel like i've been um a contributor here's chad from columbia missouri who wants to know how much of your character development comes from real people in your life and do these people get to know how you brought them into a story yeah there you get to uh my big uh confession that i'm not a creative genius almost all my characters are inspired by real people or, or and real things and some of them 
some of them are amalgamations of a lot of inspirations from a lot of people, but some are very one-on-one. Like I mentioned the Lincoln lawyer was very much inspired by, um, uh, um, you know, Your college, college roommate. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, Bauer, the, the, uh, female detective that I've been writing about a lot in the last five years is a one-on-one inspiration from, um, in fact, you know, the new book, uh, Desert Star is about how Bauer takes over uh, the rebooted cold case squad. Well, that actually just happened in the LAPD where um, cold case was shuttered for like six years and then it was rebooted with one detective and she had to go out and recruit volunteers to, to work with her. And, and that's essentially what Ballard does in Desert Star. So there you have a one-on-one, one-to-one inspiration and... Uh, and uh, the real detective, her name's Mitzi Roberts. She she vets my Ballard books, and and before I turn them into an editor in New York, I always want to see what she says about what I've written, and she invariably gives me great great stuff to uh, correct or to add to amplify uh, from her own life. So so the uh, yeah, no 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 creative genius there. I'm really kind of hijacking her life and and uh, fictionalizing it a bit, um, but it but it's so fascinating. I don't want to fictionalize it too much. And when you say you fictionalize, but do you also use? We find out a lot about her personally and that sort of thing, or is that more your imagination? That's more my imagination, but um, you know the work and her interaction with it. Um, you know, last year's book was about Ballard working the night shift in Hollywood during pandemic and uh, at post George Floyd and her views of that. Um, those are very much came from Detective Roberts. Here's but, Robert you Shoji know. of Los Angeles who wants to know, what's the story behind the image on your T-shirt? I was going to ask you about that, too. It looks like um, uh, a story. It's yeah. just a T-shirt, but it shows a guy playing a trumpet. Um I, I like jazz. I like to listen to jazz when I'm writing Harry Bosch. And uh, yeah, so it's just um, a connection to jazz, I guess. Well, Harry Bosch is a jazz aficionado. Uh, does the jazz help your um, your juices creatively, you think? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think there is a correlation. I can't put it in words. There's some kind of connection between music and writing. And I think it's more acute in in jazz because a lot of jazz is improvisational. And like I said, I don't write outlines. I just sit down and write. And so it's kind of like, uh, he'd probably be offended by this, but like Keith Jarrett, when he sits down to play the piano and he, and he just he just plays uh, and improvises. Um, so there there is that connection and, and I can get a, a real inspiration from it. Um, yeah, there's this one song that Frank Morgan uh, put on a couple of his albums. It's only a minute long called um, Lullaby. And I play that a lot uh, um, in the mornings before I start writing. It, that For some reason, that song gets my, you use the word juices, that gets my juices going to, to hear the song that is, uh, feels sad, and but also resolute. And, and these are qualities that I think Harry has. And uh, so it gets me going, gets my juices going to write about Harry Bosch. Do you play an instrument? No, I wish I did. Uh, so I'm toying with the idea of taking piano lessons at 66 years old. Well, I, uh, I don't play any instruments either, but I tell the story of studying the trumpet as a boy and uh, my trumpet teacher called me Dizzy and I thought it was Dizzy Gillespie, but I found out otherwise. It was, <laughs> I wasn't all that receptive to the lessons as he was giving them. That was a real key. Oh, okay. Uh, we got a question from Tommy Chance in St. Paul, Minnesota, who wants to know, how much weight do you put in your style to make the book an audio book? I think he's talking about you as an author. Or as a, I mean, I can't read his mind, but I think uh, I, what I read into that question is how important is style to you? Is the language itself and how it sounds? Oh, style. How, got yeah. it. Got it. I was thinking like, you know, fashion sense or something. Um, <laughs> well, so I, I think prose, the prose are important. I love I love a good short sentence and I hone my words, if that's what we're talking about here. Um Again, I, I'm from the the reporting school where you never have enough room. Now that people work uh, mostly published online, but when I was in the newspaper business, it was a, a printed edition and you never had enough room 
to tell your story. So you really learn that less is more and short sentences and to the point. And I carry that into my books. And, and I think it's created a writing style. Um, and, and I've, you know, uh, so it's important to me. I, I hope that people, um, you know, if they didn't see my name on a page and they were reading something, I, I, I would hope, I mean, this is very egotistical, but they would say, Hey, this guy's writing like Michael Conley, or this is Michael Conley's writings. Um, and I think it is, uh, after like 30 some books, I think it's kind of, it's become distinctive and, and, and embedded in the way I write. What do you think is most distinctive about the way Michael Conley writes? What would I you highlight? Um, again, it was like, I go, so I don't know if this answers that question, but I, my first draft of a book is usually around 450 pages. And by the time I turn it in, it's usually around 390 or four, 390 to 400. And what I do is go through and cut stuff out. And, and that includes working on sentences to make them shorter. And so I really think that I said this earlier, uh, it's about momentum and a good way to build momentum is with short sentences and, and th th to keep things moving. And and I, I feel that if you have that when you're writing, in the writing, in the editing, it's going to come through in the writing, I mean, the reading, um, and, and it will become a pleasurable read. So I am thinking in terms of how the reader will receive this. Um, there's that. I think there's usually a double switch in my books. You know, you think it's resolved and then there's one more swing. I like to do that. Um, I, and, you know, I'm not uh, I'm not unique in this, but that's that's one thing that I do. May I say something about that? Uh, I don't want to, like I say, I'm not giving any spoilers here, but you will lay out a whole case in terms of evidence against a character and then make the reader realize as subsequent things occur that that case doesn't hold any water. It's in other words, somebody who seems to be the perp, so to speak, turns out not to be the perp. And it seemed to me that there was a very serious kind of plotting that went on and mapping to do that. That you might, I mean, you do that a lot in your work. It's almost characteristic of a lot of your work. Uh, well, I mean, it's definitely not from mapping because I don't do that. But I do rewrite, you know, and I can obscure things better and so forth as I go through. Um, a book for a second or third time. But I do, you know, it, it came back, comes back to your question about technology and so forth. You know, half of my career has been, or almost all of it has been when, with the advent of DNA as a leading tool for solving murders. And I like, and, and it's, I think it's also seen by readers and watchers of television as the panacea, you know, the hammer that that closes cases and and i love playing with that you know like yes this dna matches but it's but he's not the guy and then i have to figure out why he's not the guy but i but i love playing with established um senses of, and views of of uh technology and forensics you like the tv stuff that you see with detectives i'm thinking about stuff like the dick wolf the suv and uh Law and Order, but also even some of the documentary style things like Dateline, those kinds of things. Watch them? You like them? I, I don't I watch anything religiously. Um, but I, yeah, I get fulfillment from a lot of that stuff. Um, Dateline, you know, the, the true crime stuff, I like watching, but I always, I kind of have this edict in my head. I, I don't want to be inspired by anything I see on TV, I, you know, and I, I get inspired mostly from people who do the kind of job that I'm writing about, whether it's a defense lawyer or a reporter or a um, detective telling me stories. Um, so my inspiration point is usually an oral, I hear a story and the timbre of someone's voice changes because this, this means something to them. And I kind of get that ride and get inspired. So most of the books I write um, started with someone telling me a story. Um, yeah. More than an image, for example? Yeah, definitely more than an image. And, and so, because that's where I look for inspiration, I always, I put myself in position to be inspired and that might sound highfalutin, but it's like, let's have breakfast. Like, you know, I have breakfast with Missy Roberts 
and she'll tell me something uh that i then it becomes my job to figure out is that an anecdote is that a, a piece of dialogue or is that a book is that something i can parlay into a book and you know it can be any level um it, but it will be something i de deem useful that i you know metaphorically put in my back pocket to use and that's what that's my research life if you want to call it that well you've got a new character in uh in your new novel uh he's uh, called variously a psychic and an empath um i think we're going to maybe see some more of her in novels to come but do you put any stock in that i mean you know a lot of there are police forces that actually bring psychics into unsolved murders uh, it's not uncommon no, I mean, and I think that's, I think I have some fun with that in this book, but it's also realistic that 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 kind of stuff happens. And I do want to come back to that character. And I think I've set up expectations that, because a lot of um, in the book, her, the view of this character is through Harry Bosch's very jaundiced uh, eyes, very uh, cynical eyes about that. So he's not a believer but she is on the team and uh and i think when i come back to this 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 group of people which i intend to do in in a future book i'll i will flip that and she'll come up with something that works or that bears bears out to be true and and it'll be up to my characters and my readers to, to decide did she really come up with that psychically or was was there a trick involved and you know it's it's somewhat on the take of what i do on a lot of technology where i flip things around and uh, so i'm looking forward to that but but her use of her in this book was it was kind of a setup for something i'm going to do down the line well the other thing technologically in this book is investigative uh, genealogy or genetic genealogy which you're clearly up on and familiar with and you bring it into the work um any thoughts about that? Uh, I mean, particularly where it's going? Uh, it seems to be just opening up in different ways almost daily. Yeah, I mean, if nothing, I try to reflect on whatever trends are in law enforcement. And the two things in this book are, A, that a lot of the cold case units um, out there are now um, populated with volunteers, like especially older detectives who have retired but still have skills you know they might not be able to pass a physical agility test anymore but they sh sure know how to look at a crime scene and come up with an, a new idea and i and i love that and so that was part of that's a trend that's in this book and then uh, obviously the one is the uh is the genealogy and uh you know so and it, it also has a uh I don't know what you call it, like a moral question, you know, involved in it. Um, when initially it was kind of a free for all that um, law enforcement was reaching into everyone's DNA to, to find connections. Now, now, you know, there's been uh, a pullback now in, in these uh, when you send in your DNA for uh, to find out who you're related to and so forth. You now have to check a box that law enforcement can can use this. It didn't used to be that way. So so it's like an evolving trend, and uh, and that makes it fascinating to me. Like and so when you ask where's it going to go, I don't really know. Um, this could this could end quickly because of uh, uh, you know rights of freedom and so forth um, and access. Um, but it has reached the heyday and, you know, out here in California, as you're um, aware, it was very integral, integral to uh, the solving of the Golden State Killer after many, many years, uh, many decades. And, and so that became like the template for lots of law enforcement agencies to um, pursue this as well. And again, no creative genius here. The, 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 the up, uh, rebooted LAPD uh, cold case unit has an IgG specialist on their team. So I put one on my fictional team. And you're living in California as well as in Florida still kind of moving between both worlds preference. Um, no, I'm primarily, uh, Los Angeles based, um, uh, I used to go back and forth because uh, of my roots in Florida and my wife's roots and my daughter's roots, but we're pretty much uh, 
LA bound people these days. I happen to be in Florida as I'm talking to you because of a, a trip out here, but um, uh, yeah, we're California. Well, we're delighted to have you with us on Gray Matter. And uh, as I said earlier, I'm going to be with you at the Kidney Foundation luncheon, which people can actually access virtually. I look forward to that. Always uh, a delight to talk to you and uh, success with Desert Star. Congratulations. Thumbs up for me on the book. And uh, I hope it brings you even more success. 90 well, million. Let's get to 100 million, right? <laughs> Thanks very much. I appreciate it. I also look forward to the uh, luncheon with the Kennedy Foundation. And many kind thanks uh, to those of you who were with us for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And an important and vital reminder for you and those you know, respect or care about to learn more about Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and our unique growing community, simply go to graymatter.show. And thanks to all who joined us live or will hear this episode. And a special thanks to Michael Conley. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.